Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking with Vince Beiser. He is an award-winning writer whose work has appeared in Wired, Harper's, The Atlantic, Mother Jones, and Rolling Stones, among other publications. Today we're discussing his book, The World in a Grain. Vince, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, um, the the full title of your book is The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transforms Civilization. And um, what inspired you to go on this this journey to, to write this book? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the question I usually get is, why would you write a whole book about what sounds like the most boring topic in the world? <laughs> Which I, I, maybe that's why you were surprised when I asked you on the show, and I was really excited about your book. So, so maybe I'm one of those few people that that think it was a great topic. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, here's, I mean, you know, it, it actually is. I think a, it's a fascinating topic, but it's it's one that barely anybody thinks about or knows about, including me, just, you know, until a few years ago. But basically what happened was, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a full-time freelance journalist, so I'm always looking for a good story. And so I read a lot of sort of obscure and out-of-the-way publications and websites and stuff. And one day, um, about four years ago now, I ran across a story about the, the murder of a farmer in India. And the, the motive for this murder just seemed completely bizarre to me. He was killed... This guy named Paliram Chohan, the vegetable farmer in, in a village in India, and he was murdered, murdered over sand. And I just read that and I thought, what? Like, what? Why in the world would anybody care that much about sand, right? It just seems like something that's everywhere and something that's completely trivial, and who cares about sand anyway? So I started looking into it and come to find out not only was it true that this guy had been killed over sand, but actually... Hundreds of people have been murdered over sand in recent years. And the reason for that is because sand is actually, turns out, it's the most important solid substance in the world. It's the literal foundation of our civilization. And I say that because it's what our cities are made out of, right? Like, I don't know where, where you are right now, Rebecca, but probably you are sitting in a building that is yeah. made at least partly out of concrete. Right, just like every, pretty much every major building in the world today, anywhere from Beijing to Lagos, is made with concrete. Every shopping mall, apartment block, office tower, and concrete is nothing but sand and gravel that's been glued together. So basically, all every large building in the world, and even you know individual houses, are big piles of sand. Also, all the roads that connect all those buildings are made of sand. Concrete and asphalt, also just sand glued together. All the windows in those buildings are made from sand. Glass is just sand that's been melted down. The silicon chips that power our computers and our cell phones, also made from sand. So, in short, no sand, no modern civilization. And the crazy thing is, we are starting to run out. And supplied that there's so much demand for sand in today's world 
that we're doing massive environmental damage to get at it. We're stripping riverbeds and beaches bare all over the world, lake bottoms, even the ocean floor in some places. And in some places, demand is so intense that organized crime has gotten into the business and you have actual, you know, gangs of criminals uh, illegally digging up tons of sand to sell on the black market. And if you really get in the way of these guys, they will kill you. And that is exactly what happened to this farmer, Pale Ram Chohan. Well, so when you were writing writing this book, did you get into any situations where you were actually afraid of what was going to happen to you? I mean, you were out there taking pictures of things and interviewing people, and at any time, I mean, nobody would. I I didn't think about this until I read your book that sand was actually, you know, a, a dangerous <laughs> to to get into. Um, but were you ever afraid for yourself? Uh, there was one right at the beginning when I was. When I was looking into this this particular murder, um, I had a pretty intense encounter, basically with the guys who had who had almost certainly killed Pali Ram Chohan. Um, what happened was this: so, I, like I said, I, I found out about this killing and thought this was the craziest thing I'd ever heard of. Right, sand people getting murdered over sand. This is I got to find out more. So I got Wired magazine to send me over to India and look into it. So I went um, to Pali Ram Chohan's village. And, you know, went to his house, met with his family, talked to his widow and his kids and his, uh, his son and so on. Got the whole story from them. And then when we, were, when we were done talking, his son says, you know, would you like to go and see the, the sand mine that we're talking about? And I said, sure. So I get in the, in the car that I'd rented out of Delhi that morning with, um, with uh, Pali Ram's son. And we drive out to this sand mine, and it's basically this huge open pit mine. It looks like, you know, the surface of the moon. It's just all the land and topsoil has been stripped away. It's just rock and sand and all these guys working in it, filling up pickup trucks. And we go bumping through this place, and everybody's kind of looking at us like, what are you guys doing here? We carry on our merry way, and we get pretty deep into the sand mine and get to one particularly, you know, torn up patch of earth and get out we're taking pictures and stuff like that and all of a sudden uh Pali Ram's son kind of grabs my arm and he points down the road where there's four guys walking towards us one big guy in front and sort of three goons behind him with shovels over their shoulders and he goes that's the guy that threat that told my dad he was going to be killed you know the head of the sand miners so we said okay well we sh- this is probably a good time to leave so we don't want to look like we're panicking, right? We don't want to break into a run. So we just kind of start walking quickly back over to the car, but we're not fast enough. And basically at, we're, we get to the car just at the same time as these four miners get there. And one of them yells out at Pali Ram's son, uh, you know, yells something that I probably can't repeat on, on the radio there. But he's basically like, you, what are you doing here? Because, of course, he recognizes him. Didn't you get the message? And Pali Ram's son sort of says, listen, we're just, uh, we're leaving. Don't worry about it. We get back in the car. And the head, uh, the head of the sand miners, a guy named Sonu, um, says, no, you're not. And he yanks open the driver's side door and pulls out our poor driver by his, you know, by the scruff of his neck. And this guy was, the driver was just some guy that I'd hired in, in Delhi that morning. He, you know, was the only person there who had really no connection to the whole thing. 
So, of course, we have to then hop out of the car and, you know, start arguing. And I can't, this is all happening in Hindi. I don't really understand everything that's going on, but it's pretty clear. Like, these guys are very angry and very suspicious. And Palaram's son is trying to talk them down, you know, sort of, they're sort of going, what are you doing here? What did you see? Oh, we didn't see anything. Uh, you know, we're just journalists. and You are not. Give us your cameras. Show us, you know, you're not going anywhere until we get to the bottom of this. And this is going back and forth for a couple of minutes, getting more and more tense. And then suddenly one of the shovel goons kind of really notices me and my white face. I'm the only, you know, non-Indian person in this whole scrum. And it is completely unfair. It's totally unjust. But um, India is, you know, still the kind of place where if you kill, if you're an Indian and you kill an Indian farmer, and you spread around enough bribes to the local police, you can probably get away with it. But if you kill a Westerner, then you can really bring down a lot more trouble on yourself, right? Then the embassies might get involved, and who knows what. So basically, everybody is just kind of, suddenly they're confused. Like, who is this guy? What's this foreigner doing here? Like, everybody's just kind of confused for a minute. And we all kind of look at each other and have the same thought at the same moment, and we just take advantage of that confusion, jump back in the car and take off. So, so that, that's, that's uh, pretty crazy to think that, that your life could have been at stake just by viewing a mine. And, and, you know, for most of us in, like I'm in Canada and people in America or in Western countries, we probably think that, you know, there's regulation on sand and, and, you know, that, that, that it can't be that bad. I, I, and, uh, you know, from reading your book, it, it obviously is. And there's a lot going on in the world about, you know, sand production and, and situations like what you were in that actually are, are worse. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, this black market and what's happening? Sure. So, I mean, the, 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 there is, in fact, in, in some places, like in India, for instance, which is where I did a lot of the reporting for the book, there are very pretty good regulations on the books saying you can't mine sand here, you can only mine so much sand there, only to this, you can only do this amount, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for instance, uh, in this area where, where this particular sand mine was, it's totally pro- by law, uh, you know, according to the laws on the books, it's totally protected. Sand mine is not, sand mining is not allowed. It's very close to a bird sanctuary. It's also close to drinking water supplies not allowed. But the problem is, in a lot of the developing world, um, you can, there's so much corruption in the system that if you just spread around enough bribes, you pay off the local cops, you pay off the local government inspectors, you can pretty much do anything you want. So that's the problem, because it's, it's always, it's much cheaper and easier to just dig up sand you know, uh, without paying any attention to those to those laws and without paying any attention to the impact on the environment, so that's why it's attractive to these to the black marketeers. And like I say, the law there are sometimes laws on the books that just aren't enforced at all. Now, in other places, there just aren't any laws at all. I mean, sand mining. You have to understand, everywhere, pretty much every country in the world is mining sand. Why? Because Pretty much every country in the world uses concrete to build with, right? Everywhere in the world, they're using modern, they're putting up modern concrete buildings, they're building modern paved roads, and we need huge amounts of sand for that. 
We actually use more sand more than any other natural resource except water. 50 billion tons of it every single year, which is enough to cover the entire state of California. So there's this huge demand. And like I say, in some places there are no rules at all. In some places there are rules, but they're, they're just not enforced. And that's why it's causing so much damage around the world. Well, it it's um, some of your stories, uh, you know, about how our beaches are disappearing. And, you know, uh, my understanding had actually been that that was just erosion from from winds and, and things, other things that were happening. And I didn't realize that, that some of what was happening was was black market sand mining. And, and now is that happening everywhere or just in countries like India? Like, is, is there, you know, in California, do people actually steal the sand from the beaches as well? So beaches are a, are a slightly different story. So there is people, so part of it is, yes, indeed, people do, people are taking sand off of beaches, in many cases illegally. That doesn't really happen. There, there's a little bit of illegal sand mining in the United States and probably in Canada, um, but, but very little, basically because we actually have a pretty good system of rules and regulations in place and pretty good enforcement. Not to say that there's no damage, there is, but it's much, much less than you find in the developing world. But beaches, uh, we have a very big problem with beaches uh, in the United States and in, in pretty much all over the world. It is caused by erosion, but it's, it's erosion that's really made worse by human beings. Basically what's happening is this. I mean, beaches are always eroding, of course, right? They're always, wind and waves are always sweeping the sand off the beaches and out, to, out into the ocean. Now, in the natural course of things, what happens is that sand gets replenished. More sand gets brought down either by rivers and or by currents. The, the ocean currents bring sand um, down from one place down along the coast and deposits along beaches. So there's kind of a natural balance. The problem is that human beings are interfering with both of those processes. So the, river, the sand that used to come down from rivers, we're either mining it taking it straight out of, the, out of the rivers to use for construction. And we're also, all those dams that we've built along rivers are blocking that flow of sand. Same thing along the coast. We have built up so many marinas and jetties and, and infrastructure along the coast that it blocks that flow of sand. So the natural erosion is continuing, but in many, many places, including here in Southern California, all up and down the coast of Florida, pretty much everywhere, that the, the natural erosion continues, but the natural replenishment is not. So as a result of that, we're having to artificially replenish our beaches, which means basically we're having to dig up sand from huge pits inland and bring it in by truck and dump it on the coast to rebuild those beaches. And in, this is, it's, a, it's a real crisis in southern Florida and some of the most famous beaches in the world, Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, those beaches by now are completely 100% artificial. They, have, they would not exist anymore at all if human beings didn't keep digging up sand in one place and, and dumping it on the coast. That's a, a pretty crazy thought to me that that we we are having to do that. Uh, you know, there's these these beaches that were there naturally, and then we've destroyed them. And it it can't be good for the 
the ecosystem for us to have to replenish beaches. I mean, I, I can imagine that that's just like anything else where there's some damage done just because that's happening. And of course, we're having to dig up sand. So th- there's there's an imbalance there for sure uh, of what's happening. Yep, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, you think about, I mean, it takes a lot of sand to build a beach, as you might imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, it, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of tons of sand that get, you know, that are being used in projects every year just on one individual beach. And this is happening on dozens of beaches all around the country. So you think about how much truck traffic that is, right? How many, because it's all brought in, it's usually brought in by truck. So you have thousands and thousands more diesel spewing trucks going up and down the roads the carbon emissions, then you have the issue of when you dump the sand on the beach, inevitably some of that sand, uh, it's not always um, uh, compatible with, with the naturally occurring sand and, and whatever uh, birds and, and uh, insects and other life forms lived on that sand, so it can really disrupt that natural balance. And also it can create what's called turbidity in the water because all that fresh sand, uh, it hasn't when it, when it hits the water, and of course, some of it, some of that sand and some of the silt, some of the dust on that sand goes out into the water, and it can cloud up the water, which can suffocate coral reefs, do damage to fish and other kinds of aquatic life that are there. Uh, which is pretty important. We're going to talk about that when we get back from this break. We're talking today with Vince Beiser, and we're discussing his book, The World in a Grain. We'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You 
are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. A stain-free and clean home is something to be proud about, but it's hard to maintain when you're using cleaning products that don't work well or take forever to use. Q Carbona, a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning expertise into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. When I heard about stain devils, my stain-removing game was changed. Think about this. If you have a chocolate stain, it wouldn't make sense to treat it with a formula that removes wine because they're chemically different. Knowing this, Carbona created specific stain removers for specific stain types. Genius, right? Beyond stain removers, they have highly efficient products for your laundry, carpets, and washing machine. My co-host Oliver, who's a Chihuahua cross and he sits here with all my shows, wants to remind you not to forget about the pet stain and odor remover. Want to start living your life unstained? Shop Carbona.com with code FTTC for 20% off your order. So Vince, um, you talked about turbidity with with the sand. So this is something I hadn't thought about. I mean, we all know that there, there's there's some issues going on with our oceans. Um, but what, what what you said in your book was when you dig up the sand, um, it it can actually affect the coral reefs even if they're not being touched. What happens there? So there's a couple of ways. Um, so we were talking about um, beach replenishment, or what they call beach nourishment, is how they like to call it in the industry. So, as I said, uh, often that happens um, with sand that they've brought in from uh, from pits inland. Sometimes they do it by sucking up sand from the ocean floor, and they just literally uh, drop a pipe to the bottom of the of the ocean, and the other end of the pipe shoots out that sand right up onto the coast. And they've actually done so much of this in southern Florida that they have completely run out of sand in ocean in in Miami Beach, and that's why they have to bring it in by truck. Anyway, but they're still doing using that method in a lot of places, and that can so that can damage coral reefs by you know basically you've got this huge vacuum cleaner on the bottom of the of the ocean, it can easily suck in. Uh, you know, uh, all the, the sand and the silt and everything around those coral reefs that, that helps nourish and protect them, um, and that it can damage them in that way. Second way uh, that it happens is even when, you're, even when you're careful to dig up your sand from somewhere, you know, a good distance away from those coral reefs, it stirs up all the, the whatever was on the bottom of the ocean, all that sand and silt and mud and muck gets all stirred up, um, and it clouds up the the water. You know, it's just like when you if you when you stomp in a mud puddle, all of a sudden that mud puddle turns all muddy and gray because all the the sediment is now suspended up in the water. And that can it does two things. One is it can settle right on the coral reefs and you know basically coat them in mud and suffocate them. Two is it can just cloud up the water enough that the sunlight sunlight doesn't isn't able to get through the water to nourish the plants on the reef and everywhere else, right? Those plants need sunlight just like 
plants uh, plants on on the ground on the land need uh, sunlight to survive. And if you have too much turbidity, if the water is too cloudy, it can block that sunlight and kill off the whatever's living underneath the the, the water's surface. Well, do do we so understand? Yeah, like I can see the coral. The coral is getting damaged, but but you know, I'm just thinking of shows I've done about um, uh, farming and and talking about killing all the little bugs in the soil. Um, this, you know, digging up the sand and not having the ecosystem that that is obviously meant to be there must do more damage than just even what you've said. There there must be something happening that we may not even understand yet. Oh, absolutely. Well, so first let me tell you about what we definitely know is happening. So a lot of the sand mining that happens in the world, probably the number one place that we get sand from isn't the ocean, but is riverbeds, um, the bottoms of rivers and of lakes. Um, and the reason for that is there's a, there's a lot of sand down there. It tends to be very clean, right, because it's being washed by the river. And also it's very easy to transport, right? It's the same thing. What, what you do is you just, put a big barge, a big dredge out in the middle of the river, drop a big pipe down to the bottom and just suck up all the sand from the bottom of the river onto your boat. And then there it is on your boat and you're on a river and it's very easy and cheap to transport it. So that's why people really like to mine sand from, from rivers. Now the problem with that is, uh, is threefold. First of all, um, when you do that, obviously when you just suck up the entire bottom of the river, Anything that was living on that river bottom or that lake bottom, you've just wiped out its habitat completely. Any kind of fish or shellfish uh, or microbes, insects, whatever was down there, you've just annihilated their habitat. That's number one. Number two is, um, uh, as I said, it, it creates a lot of turbidity, stirs up a lot of muck, which can suffocate things that are swimming in the river. Now, that, that column of turbidity, that big cloud of muck in the water can travel up a long ways down the river and it can literally suffocate, you know, again, fish, plant life, whatever was living in the water. And then thirdly, it also blocks the sunlight from reaching uh, plants that were living below. So it can do huge damage to river ecosystems. So that's, that's things like seagrass beds, mangrove swamps, birds, fish, and we know for a fact huge numbers of birds and fish and endangered species like freshwater porpoises uh, have been just, just uh, you know, devastated by this kind of sand mining. So we know for sure that that is happening. Now, when you talk about, as you say, the, the kind of microscopic organisms and tiny insects and things like that at the very bottom of the food chain, we don't know for sure because basically there isn't enough research being done around this, but there is some research that suggests that indeed those kind of uh, organisms at the very, very base of the food chain are also being harmed by sand mining. Obviously, um, you know, just digging up the sand can hurt them. But also, as I said, there is there are a few studies out there. The University of California at San Diego just came out with a study about a year or two ago that indicates that when you replenish, when you bring in sand from, from one place and dump it, you know, on a beach 200 miles away, that that can actually do terrible damage to those organisms that are living. These are things, we're talking about things that are small enough to live on the surface of this of each sand grain. Tiny little organisms, nematodes, flatworms, um, that can be really decimated 
by this kind of thing, basically because you're bringing one kind of sand and dumping it on another kind of sand, and they're just not compatible. You might think, well, who cares? These little teeny things that are so small, they live on the surface of a, of a grain of sand. But each of those things, of course, feeds something larger and something larger in turn, which then gets eaten by, you know, birds or fish or crabs or whatever, you know, the larger animals that we can actually see. And it has reverberations all up and down the food chain. Which I can definitely understand. I mean, I haven't done a, a lot of research on what happens with the wa- the water, but m- my example back to farming, we know that spraying pesticides is killing all the bugs that are keeping the soil healthy. We're not getting the nutrients that we used to. And, and I just, you know, I can see that there is going to be a huge effect if we continue going down this road and damaging these ecosystems that we don't even have a full understanding of. And so we're going to just be in this situation where, where suddenly we're we're in a we're desperate, which I feel like we're almost there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, a lot of what we're doing, and this is you know, this has been the story for for decades, right? We come up with what seems like a solution to a problem, like pesticides, and we start spraying pesticides everywhere, and then only then find out that it's actually creating even worse problems than the one we we're trying to trying to solve. And I think sand mining is a very similar thing. I mean, you know, we've been, we rely very heavily on sand. We use huge amounts of it. And it just seems like, what could possibly be the problem? There's sand everywhere. There's so much of it. You know, it's not going to be a, it's not going to cause us any trouble to use this stuff. But what we are starting to learn is, it's like anything else. When you start, you know, digging it up in, in the huge quantities that we're talking about, that has impact. That has major impacts that we're only just starting to become aware of. Um, and it's already hitting the point where, you know, in a lot of places, we're in a real crisis. The damage that's being done by sand mining is, is becoming really severe. And, and uh, you know, we need to uh, to wake up and, and, and start doing something about it, start figuring out a way that we can get the building materials that we need, that we can get the sand that we need for our concrete and our, for our roads, and even to re-nourish our beaches, but in a way that isn't going to do terrible damage to the environment. Well, I definitely agree. Now, there's another industry that we haven't mentioned yet is is the technology industry, which I think nobody would think about. But you do talk about that in your book that um, we need we need it also for technology, which is something that is actually very disposable, which maybe that's just something that can change. Um, But where is sand used in the technology industry? So that's a really fascinating corner of the of the sand business is is technology. I mean, basically, all of the most the the, the central pieces of our digital age, the, the brains of our computers and our cell phones, and pretty much any piece of digital equipment, they run on silicon chips, right? That's hence Silicon Valley, and silicon the silicon to make those chips comes from sand. So most sand in the world, um, so let me back up for a little minute. So the word sand can really mean small, hard bits, grains of, of any hard material. So it can be, sand can mean any kind of grains of any kind of rock, or it can be ground up shells, it can be crushed up uh, volcanic rock. 
but most of the sand in the world, most sand grains on Earth, um, and the ones that we use the most by far are quartz. Okay, and quartz is silicon dioxide. It's silicon plus oxygen. You put silicon plus a silicon uh, atom plus together with a two atoms of oxygen, and you have silicon dioxide. You have quartz. So there's lots of quartz all over the world. It's probably the most abundant thing on the Earth's surface. The silicon that we need for those silicon chips, what we need is absolutely pure silicon and nothing but silicon. And the problem is silicon itself doesn't appear in nature anywhere. It doesn't, you never find just pure silicon. It's always bound together with oxygen. So what you have to do to create that silicon is you start with um, sand, silicon dioxide, and you have to run it through an, a really astonishing series of industrial and chemical processes, basically blast it with incredibly high heat, and then treat it with all sorts of different chemical processes. You do a whole bunch of things, and eventually you can strip out all that oxygen, and you're left with the pure silicon that we need to make our silicon chips. So it all starts with sand. It's a lot of work to get it down to that pure silicon, but the the material that that you start out with is just plain old sand. Which is pretty crazy. I mean, you and I are communicating because of sand. <laughs> and here we're talking That's about right. how the, the industry needs to, to slow down. And, and, you know, it's very difficult for us to go down these roads and have to be reliant so much on something and, and then to change it. It, it is something that's going to have to change slowly because we, we just won't adjust fast enough. But, you know, some things can change. Phones are disposable. We, we see them that that way you know we see oh I've got a phone and in two years I'll get a new one and you know it, it shouldn't be that way and I think those are things that that can change um, so that we're not throwing things out as much and um, not having to use the resources as much I think if we if we just look at some simple things like that might change absolutely absolutely I mean you know I always get the question you know I go around and I, I tell people about all the terrible damage that sand is doing. It's causing all these environmental problems. It's causing crime and suffering and, and, and death. People say, well, what can we do? And the answer really is, I mean, there, you know, there are different ways that we can use less sand or that we can uh, you know, maybe find alternatives for sand in some very specific application. But the bottom line is that sand is just another one of the natural resources that we keep hearing about that we're running out of, right? I'm sure this is a really familiar story to to you and to your listeners, right? We know that we're using too much fresh water. We're cutting down too many trees. We're taking too many fish out of the ocean. And now come to find out we're running out of sand, right? These are not separate problems. These are all symptoms of the same problem, which is exactly what you just said, which is just that we are using too many resources. There just isn't enough stuff. There just aren't enough actual resources on the planet to sustain the way of living that we've come up with here in, in, the, in the Western world, in the rich world. We cannot have that in a world that's already got 7 billion people on it and is fast on track to hit 9 billion people. We've got to find ways to live our lives and to build our cities, which is where most people now live, is in cities. We've got to find ways to build those cities in ways that 
consume less, that use fewer resources, that are more sustainable. So it's not just sand that we should be worrying about. It's, it's everything. We've got to find ways to simply use fewer resources across the board. Well, I'm going to um, ask you what your ideas for that are after this break. We're going to be back shortly. We're talking today with Vince Beiser, and we'll be back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. We're on the pulse of the world with great shows and hosts. The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel is also on Twitter. We've got ideas to keep you healthy, breaking health news, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Voice AM Health. That's at Voice AM Health. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Vince Beiser, and we're discussing discussing his book, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. So, Vince, first, I want to I want to address one thing I hear um, on a monthly basis. Um, somebody makes the comment that the climate change that's happening now is something that would happen anyway. And there's nothing that we have done. Um, I just uh, can you address that comment for me? Sure, about climate change? Yeah, that, that yeah, we I haven't mean, done any damage. Well, I mean, people do say that, but I mean, basically, if, if you believe in science, then that's simply not true, right? I mean, pretty much there's overwhelming scientific consensus that's just getting stronger and stronger that human beings have, have and are changing the climate, that what we're doing is changing the climate, not only warming it, but also altering it in other ways, and, uh, and that that's going to have major uh, and sometimes catastrophic impacts on us. I mean, like I said, people who, people who choose not to believe that are literally just saying, I do not believe in science. Because if you look at any of the, any of the published work by the, the, the IPCC, the international, uh, I forget what it stands for, but basically the UN panel that's been convened to, 
to address climate change, which is a gathering of hundreds of scientists from every country in the world, all of them agree that this is the case. And, of course, there's still people out there on the Internet and wherever else saying, well, no, it's not true because, look, it it was cold today, so that shows that global warming isn't happening. But, like I say, you know, that's like saying the Earth is flat because I'm standing here in my front yard and all I can see is, and I don't see the earth curving. You know, there's, there's, if you talk to any uh, reputable scientist, any research organization, anybody who's, who's done the reading and actually believes that scientists know what they're talking about, there is no question. There is scientific consensus on that. And if you don't believe it, then you just don't believe in science. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you about that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just I, I, I wanted to, to point that out because it is something that I hear a lot and I'm always surprised by it. And maybe I shouldn't be anymore. But, um, you know, our 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 temperature and climate is different. And I, I like to use climate change over global warming because then people will argue it when our summers are cold, even if our winters are warm. Um, but, but you know, there there's definitely something different. And, and you know, even if you want to deny that, that that's different, we are, as human beings, we have a responsibility and the earth is in our care and we are doing damage to it. You know, just um, conversations like we've had today about digging up sand and what we're doing to the ecosystem. We, we should, we need to address that just for, for that sake. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And sand of course uh, ties into climate change. Um, It, uh, in a couple of different ways. So one is, like, so like I said, the number one thing that we use sand for is concrete. Um, that's you know the where most of the sand that we dig out of the out of the earth goes to make concrete. And you just have to look around the world to see how much of that we use. Um, in fact, we use enough concrete every year to build a wall about 30 meters wide and 30 meters high right the way around the equator every single year. Now, how does that affect climate change? Um, So to make concrete, you need cement. People often mix up concrete and cement, but cement is is the glue. It's the paste that sticks together um, the sand and the gravel to form concrete. So the making of cement actually is one of the biggest uh, emitters of greenhouse gases. The actual process of, of, of manufacturing cement produces a huge amount of carbon dioxide, and it's, one of, it's the number three contributor to, uh, to greenhouse gases after, um, uh, after transportation and power. So that's one way that our use of sand is really uh, contributing to, to climate change. The other is that all of that concrete... Um, has the effect of adding to the warming, right? One of the biggest impacts of climate change, of course, is a lot of hot places are getting hotter. Um, and, you know, all of the last, each of the last 10 years or so has been the hottest on record. And, uh, you know, we've seen the impacts here. I live in Southern California. We've had the worst wildfires in history in the last couple of years. British Columbia, right next door to where you are, yep. has, had, yep. has had the worst forest fires in its history. You know, a lot of that is definitely attributable to, to how temperatures are rising. 
Now, in cities, um, a lot of that, that, that increased heat actually gets magnified because of all that concrete, right? And if you've ever set foot on, on asphalt on a hot, barefoot on a hot summer day, you know it gets really, really hot, right? All that concrete and asphalt soaks up the sun's heat. And it can create what's called the, the uh, urban heat island effect, which is basically on a hot day, all that concrete in a city, all those roads, all those buildings, parking lots, soaks up heat and keeps it, and it can boost temperatures in cities by as much as an additional 10 or 15 degrees. So it exacerbates that, that problem of, of growing heat, and that can be a real problem, especially in, in the developing world where people don't have as much access to air conditioning as we do. For instance, in, in New Delhi, uh, just in the last week or two, temperatures have hit 120 degrees, if you can imagine. And that is actually lethal for old people, for people in poor health, for kids. And dozens and dozens of people die regularly as a result of their cities simply becoming too hot. And that's, you know, concrete contributes to that. So um, what do you think we can do to stop using so much sand? So that's a great question. What can we do about it? So um, there are a number. There are a, a, a number of things that we can do, kind of short term to to mitigate the harm. So one is um, there are uh, we could we could try to use less sand, right? We could use something else in the place of sand. And there are um, there is a lot of research going on around the world looking into uh, replacing sand. In concrete, because again, concrete's the number one thing we have to worry about. So there are a lot of researchers looking into uh, using alternative materials like shredded plastic or shredded bamboo um, or even ground up tires, old tires. You can grind up the rubber and use that instead of sand. And some of those applications are turning out to to actually work. Like there's there's a stretch of highway in the Netherlands where I was just last week. Um, that are, that's made with concrete that's made with shredded rubber. They just ground up old tires and use that instead of sand. And that kind of thing, obviously, that's a win-win, right? If you can use trash, right, the plastic trash or rubber that would have gone into a landfill or gone into our oceans, if you can use that instead of sand, well, that's a double win, right? You've saved on garbage and you've saved, you haven't had to harvest fresh sand from the environment. So that's that kind of stuff is still at a very beginning phase, but but um, hopefully that'll continue to grow and we'll continue to find more and better ways to use um, other substances, especially garbage, you know, things that we would have thrown out otherwise instead of sand. So that's what. Yeah. Is, and that, oh, go sorry. ahead. Go ahead. You have a question? No, go ahead. Okay. The other, another thing is uh, recycling, right? We can do a certain amount of recycling with sand products. Um, glass is the best example. Again, glass is just sand that's been melted down. So we are already, we're doing a, you know, a decent job of recycling glass. You can turn glass, old glass into new glass fairly easily. So hopefully we'll be doing more of that. Um, also asphalt, you know, the black, black top that you see in, in, on roads and in parking lots, that stuff can be recycled into, into new asphalt relatively easily. And even concrete, to a certain extent, can be recycled. You can, like when you tear down an old building or an old shopping mall or whatever, you can crush down that concrete 
break it back down into grains of sand and reuse it in new concrete. You can do that to a certain extent. And um, we're starting to do that more and more. It's still a very, very small uh, percentage of the total industry, but it is, it is starting to grow. And, you know, hopefully uh, it'll, that'll continue to grow. We should be doing everything we can to encourage that. The problem is with concrete is that um, there's only a certain amount that you'll ultimately be able to recycle. Why? Because when you build something out of concrete, if you build a road, you build a building, you build a dam, you're not just going to use it for one day and then toss it the way that we do with a bottle or a newspaper, right? When you build something out of concrete, usually you want it to stay in place for 50, 60, 100 years. So most of the sand that goes into concrete is pretty much taken out of circulation permanently. Um, however, that said, there are things, there's also a lot of research going on into ways to make concrete last longer, which would be good, right? Because if our buildings, you know, stay put an extra 10, 20, 50 years, that's that much less sand that we have to use to replace them. So there's a lot of really amazing research going on into things like self-healing concrete, concretes that can literally fix themselves. When cracks start to appear in concrete, that concrete can literally heal itself, seal up those cracks using a bunch of really fascinating high-tech chemical processes and so on. So there's, so there are those kinds of, you know, those kinds of technological uh, uh, solutions and advances that are coming. And I say that's all to the good and we should definitely be doing everything we can to, uh, to support those. But at the end of the day, like I, like I said in, the, in, the, in our last segment, the only real solution is to not just focus on sand or concrete. We can't just focus on the one thing. We have to look at this whole problem holistically because the central problem is overconsumption. The central problem is human beings are just using up too much stuff, and we have to find ways to build our cities that use fewer resources. And here's, here's one really good example of how we can do that. Um, that addresses, that speaks to sand and speaks to other things. Um, and that is reduce car ownership. And you might say, well, what does car ownership have to do with sand? Well, if you think about it, if we could get 10% of, if we could reduce car ownership in the United States and Canada, let's say, just by 10%, get 10% of the population uh, to just stop, to, to not own cars. Well, first of all, that would mean 10% of all new houses you build no longer need garages or driveways. And that right there, think of all the concrete that goes into building a driveway and a garage, actually hundreds of tons of concrete just for that. So if you can build your house and you don't need a garage and a driveway, well, first of all, your house is cheaper. Second of all, you've saved on a lot of natural resources. Also, if car ownership is 10% less than it is today, well, all those giant parking lots and shopping malls and airports and everywhere else, all those parking lots can be built 10% smaller. So that's another huge savings on concrete. It means that our roads and our freeways don't have to be quite as big. And they don't have to be quite as strong. We don't have to use as much concrete to build them because there aren't as many cars on them. So you just cut 10% of the cars out of the equation, and you are saving millions of tons of concrete every year, along with all the greenhouse gases that you're saving by having fewer cars on the road, less traffic by having fewer cars on the road. 
So that's one example of how by saving, cutting down resource use in one area, by living smaller in one area, you can also save on resource use in many, many other areas. There's this kind of ripple effect that happens. And to my mind, those are the kinds of solutions that we need. Things that where we're not just narrowly looking at one specific resource. How can we use less sand? How can we use less fossil fuels? But how can we save on all of those things or on many different things at once with a you know, holistic approach that we can take to make our cities in in their totality, more sustainable. Does that make sense? It, it does, and it's a really good uh, question to end with. I mean, you've answered a lot of it. Um, but I, I, I want people to, you know, to think about this more. You know, it's not just um, recycling bottles. It, it's our overall use of everything. It's really important that, that we start to recognize this um, as a whole. So thank you so much for, for writing this book. Um, I do recommend it for everybody. It's not boring. <laughs> it's not the most boring subject in the world. World. It was actually a very interesting read. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing everything. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And yeah, if folks want to get a hold of me, I'm, I'm easy to find. Uh, my website is just my name, VinceBeiser.com. Beiser is B-E-I-S-E-R.com. And yeah, and you can find the book on, on Amazon, on Borders up there in Canada, wherever books are sold. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And I want to um, thank everybody for listening. If you want more information about my story or my journey back to health, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, or your favorite social media platform. And thanks so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.